Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. If uh, you're a guest with us today, we are just so delighted that you're here. And if you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we're delighted that you're worshiping with us as well. Um, last day of March, I hope it is the last day we see snow for months. And um, yeah, well. You know, we, we, we don't have any control over the weather and all that kind of good stuff, but well, I'm anxious for spring to, to arrive, and I know you are too. It seems like in the springtime of the year, it is easier to just get out and, and continue building relationships. And this morning, we're talking about in our series, Walk Like Jesus, building loving, intentional relationships. And, and, and you say, well, how, how does a person build a loving, intentional relationship? Well, it begins with us taking the first step. You see, the person who sits and waits for somebody else to intentionally reach out uh, usually ends up without a relationship, and it's very seldom, <laughs> if any, loving or intentional. You see, we need to make the first step. Jesus took the first step. He was a master at human relationships. He knew when and how to be compassionate, gracious, tolerant, and empathetic, but he also knew when to be firm, determined, and uncompromising. He was encouraging, but honest. He graciously forgave, but he insisted on obedience to God. He challenged people's lifestyle. He raised the bar on godly expectations, but he did it all without a legalistic spirit. He could confront one's sin in one minute and make you laugh in the next. From little children to elderly adults, people longed to be with him because he knew how to create intentional, loving relationships. Now, with the exception of the religious leaders, whose power and influence were threatened by Jesus, everybody else seemed to want a relationship or a friendship with him. And if we could return, let's say we, there was a time machine. We could go back 2,000 years ago to the time when Jesus lived as investigative reporters and interview the people who knew him and find out how they felt about him and what kind of a relationship they thought they shared with him. I, I think we'd gain some insight. And, and let's just suspect that we're, we're going to do this in, in only one town. We're going to visit the, the community of Capernaum, a, a, a town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, a town that basically became Jesus's home during his three-year earthly ministry, a site that uh, was the home to many New Testament events. A nearby elevation to Capernaum is the place where many believe the Sermon on the Mount itself occurred. Peter and his family had a home in Capernaum there, and Peter's mother-in-law lived with them. Now, if anybody would have resented Jesus from taking Peter away from a lucrative business of fishing, it would have been the mother-in-law. She would not have liked that. But one day, Jesus comes into the house and finds Peter's mother-in-law sick, very sick, critically ill, with a terrible fever. And all Jesus does is he goes over and touches her and the fever disappears. The illness is gone. She gets up and begins to take care of the family. If you could have asked Peter's mother-in-law, what do you think of Jesus? Did you have a relationship with him? I think she would have said, oh, oh, Jesus, he was my friend. By that same evening, the evening in which Peter's mother-in-law had been healed, the crowds are bringing the sick and the demon-possessed to Jesus. And that day in Capernaum, he begins to heal 
all of them. And I think, if you could have, I think if you could have visited with every one of them individually, they would have said, oh, I had a relationship with Jesus. Because you see, when I think Jesus was dealing with you, the look in his eye, the touch in his hands would have revealed that he saw you as the only person in the room or the only person in the crowd. And when that happens, you feel like, I, I've got a friendship with that person. I've got a relationship with that person. It was from the very shore of the, of the community of Capernaum that Jesus sailed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I think we have a picture that, that's taken right from the shoreline of Capernaum looking across to the other side. It was there across on that day that Jesus stilled the waters and the storm and, and caused the winds to die down. It was on the other side when they got to that other side that they found the demoniac, that that wild, crazy, naked demoniac that lived among the tombs and Jesus cast the demons of legion out of him. And the next time that Jesus returned to that same area, this man had brought hundreds, even thousands of people out to meet Jesus. And if you could have interviewed the demoniac, you, you, you would have learned that he would have thought Jesus was the greatest person ever. He's my friend. On another day, Jesus is back in Capernaum and he's teaching in a house, probably Peter's house, to be to be honest. And it's crowded. I mean, these these are people are packed in there like sardines and mustard sauce. And and you couldn't get near the windows. You couldn't get near the doors. And the people that couldn't get in were standing by the windows and the doors. So there's no air moving. These people are hot. They smell like fish. They're sweaty. You get the you get the environment. And and four guys, a quartet of guys, shows up with their their best friend on a litter. He is. Uh, He's paralyzed. And, and they were bringing him to Jesus because they'd waited long enough. They were, it was time to, to get him healed. And, and they couldn't even get near Jesus. And uh, the crowd wouldn't break to let him through. And so they climbed the roof with their friend. And they begin to dig around in the, in the dirt, trying to get the roof apart with their fishermen's knives and their bare hands. And finally, they get a hole big enough that they can start winching their friend down. Now, you got to realize that with the hot, sweaty, smelly room, and then with dust and dirt falling on everybody, this is not an easy area to teach. But Jesus is thrilled. I bet I, if you could have looked at Jesus, I bet he had a smile across his face from ear to ear, seeing the faith in these guys. And he looks at the young man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And everybody just kind of pauses, you know. Well, that's not really why he was winched down in front of Jesus. And of course, the Pharisees in the room are, are incredulous that Jesus would say such a thing. But then Jesus says, so that you might know that I have the power to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And he does. Gets up and walks and rolls up the mat and you know, and they wouldn't let him in, but they let him out. He, he walks right out the door, you know, because when, when Jesus does something incredible, it changes lives. And, and that day, if you could have asked all five of those guys, was Jesus a friend, you'd have got five yeses. And what we often forget in the story is that the story began with relationship building. These four friends had a relationship with the paralytic. The paralytic had a relationship with them. There would be no story if there hadn't been a friendship there to begin with. And imagine if there was no story. These four friends would have been still discouraged. And the paralytic would still have been paralyzed. And the people of Capernaum would not have heard this lesson on the power of God to forgive sins and the power of Jesus to transform lives. Oh, I mean, it was an awesome moment. And yes, they would have said, I had a relationship with the Lord. And then, of course, you have the Roman centurion who was stationed at Capernaum. And nobody liked the Romans. And the Romans knew they weren't liked. But this Roman centurion had a servant that was 
ill. Well, I, I like the way Matthew tells the story. So let's just read it in Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, well, I'll go and heal him. The centurion replied, oh, no, no, Lord, I, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. I with soldiers under me and I, I say to this one go and he goes and I say to this one come and he comes and I say to my servant do this and he does it and when Jesus heard this he was astonished and he said to those following him I, I, I tell you the truth I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith then Jesus said to the centurion go it will be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed that very hour how do you think the centurion viewed Jesus? I mean, here is a rabbi, and he is a Roman soldier. The two just didn't mix. But I think this guy would have said, you know, Jesus was a friend even to those of us who were viewed as the enemy by the rest of the people. Yeah, I had a relationship with Jesus. One of the identifiable buildings that is left in the ancient city of Capernaum is the two-story synagogue. It must have been an impressive building in its day. As we stood there, I asked our guide, I said, where would the rabbi have stood while he was teaching or where would he have sat while he was teaching? And um, this picture shows the doorway to the uh, synagogue and, and the, our, our guide said he would, he would have stood or sat right there at the, at, the, at the doorway. I thought, you know, that's a pretty good plan. Uh, Teacher stands by the doorway. It's a, little, it's a little hard to get up and leave a sermon, uh, you know, if you're standing right in the doorway. And I, so I've been thinking about making some changes here about doorways and, and that kind of thing. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. I took this picture from up on a ledge over here of, of the stones. And when he told me where the rabbi would have stood, because I knew Jesus taught in that place numerous times. I, I walked over, folks, and I just placed my hand on those stones by the door. Those ancient stones. And I just stood there. It, it was one of the most moving moments of my time in, in Israel. Now, I, I know millions of hands have brushed those stones in the last 2,000 years. But I know, I know my Lord touched those stones. And I know my Lord stood there or sat there and taught. I was standing where Jesus had stood. And, and the emotions welled up in, inside of me. And I, and I thought about all the moments where the emotions would have welled up inside other people. There, there was a day in Capernaum when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was in the audience. Jesus knew it. He asked the man to extend his hand and the hand came out and it was perfectly whole. A hand that could not work now worked just perfectly. Pharisees were indignant that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath and Jesus was indignant that they were angry that somebody had been released from the bondage of this illness through all their life and now was a whole person. And if you'd asked that man as he walked out of that service at the synagogue that day, what do you think of Jesus? He would have said, he would have said, Jesus, oh Jesus, he's my friend. What kind of a relational story would your report be after you've finished all the interviews at Capernaum. And just think, folks, just think. It all began with Jesus taking the first step. The book 
just walk across the room is all about taking the first step to help somebody else find faith in Christ. That's the whole idea we have behind One Life. Building sincere, genuine relationships with those who are seekers with the hope and the desire that someday you'll be able to speak into their life spiritually and that they will see Christ in us and be drawn to him. But we often forget that the, few, the first huge step that the Lord took exceeds anything that we will take as a first step. Our, our steps will never begin to measure his. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul writes about transcendence. That's a big word. It is defined as exceeding the usual limits. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we're talking about the sense in which God is above and beyond us. That he is higher than the world and has absolute power over the world. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, in his exalted loftiness. He is an infinite cut above everything else. But when Sprawl adds this thought, transcendence literally means to climb across, or if you please, to step across, as in taking the first step to building a relationship. Humanity, you see, was powerless to initiate a relationship with God, but God, not wanting to be without us, took the first step. He stepped across time and dimension and, and, and power and space to become one of us. Why? Because he is a relational God. Why do you think we enjoy relationships so much? It's because we're created in the image of a relational God. And I think that's why Jesus wants us to make the first step in building loving, intentional relationships. He says as much as John writes in his letter to the ancient church in 1 John chapter 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In the first two verses, John spells out the pattern that Jesus used to build relationships. In the last two verses of that passage, John compels us to build relationships so that others will see Christ in us. So how did Jesus do it? Well, here's some principles that I think spell it out. Being intentionally relational requires us to be present. And you think, oh, that's a no-brainer. Well, sometimes we forget how important it is to be present. God didn't orchestrate all this from far away. God came. He sent his son. He ended up being here. He transcended the universe, whatever that may mean, to become one of us. God was present. God was present. I understand that relationships are not easy. They're messy. They're inconvenient. They're frustrating. And they're exhausting at times. But there will be no relationship if we aren't present. How long do you think a marriage could last if the bride and the groom lived in two different states and never saw each other? It, it couldn't last. It, it, it's impossible for it to last. Relationships require presence. That means not just physical presence, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as well. I mean, you can be in the room and still not present. You know what I mean? You can be checked out. As a matter of fact, we see that in the town that Jesus called home. 
close proximity doesn't mean you're present. It just means you're close in proximity. To be present, you have to be there physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And in Jesus' hometown, I, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the fact that he lived there for those three years of his ministry at Capernaum. Uh, I, I don't know if they just got so accustomed to seeing. I don't know if they dismissed. I don't know what it was. But, but, but somehow the people there didn't click. Now, some did, of course. But, but they just... They just didn't get what Jesus was up to. The name Capernaum means village of consolation or village of comfort. But, but somehow, some way, the people of Capernaum could never find their consolation in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus had to say about this town that he called home during his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 11. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. If they had just been present mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, maybe they would have recognized that Jesus was indeed Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Here's something else. Being intentionally relational requires us to be intentional. And you think again, that's redundant. No. You see, the intentionality is the hard part. Jesus intentionally came so that we might have our everlasting life through him. It, Jesus didn't accidentally end up in this world and say, ah, this is funny. How'd this happen? He came with a purpose to bring us back to God. Now, we can float through life and just let things happen. But good things seldom happen accidentally. Stephen Easterbrook says... When you get things right, good things happen. You know what he's saying? He said, when you're intentional, when you have a purpose, that's when the good things follow. The same is true of relationships. They seldom happen accidentally. They can, but it's, 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 it's rare. I've mentioned about uh, being 14 years old when we were on vacation in Florida at the time of the Apollo 11 moonshot in July of that year. And uh, I, I think it was just kind of a last minute thought. Uh, maybe dad had it in mind uh, intentionally. I don't know. But it seemed, it, it seemed like a last minute thought to me as a 14 year old. We decided to spend the night in the car on a stretch of shoreline uh, along a lake that was about 10 miles away from Cape Canaveral. You know, you couldn't even see the, 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 uh, uh, the, the launch site uh, with the naked eye at that point in time. And I thought this wasn't going to work. You know, you couldn't see anything. And uh, uh, at 14, it just wasn't something I really wanted to do. Uh, and, and it ended up, folks, being one of my favorite memories of a vacation because the launch the next morning was absolutely breathtaking and awesome. Now, we weren't alone. This is the part I've not, probably not ever told you. We weren't alone. There were a lot of cars that were parked along there. And we parked next to a family uh, and, and picked up and visit. They had kids. Of course, my sister and I were along. And, and this year, July of this year, marks the 50th anniversary of the moonshot of when Neil Armstrong stepped out on the moon this July. And uh, every year since that day, mom and dad and our next door car family have exchanged Christmas cards and write notes. 50 years of sharing that memory together. We call them our moonshot friends. Now, that's not really a relationship. I mean, it's pretty special to think of 50 years of exchanging letters and cards. 
but we never see them. We never, you know, do anything with them from that kind of a standpoint. So a, a real relationship is when you spend time together. But it can happen accidentally, but very seldom. You have to be intentional about building these relationships. Today is a time that we've set aside as what we call Partnership Sunday. Yeah, you know, most people think of church membership. I don't like that term anymore because it's got too much baggage with it. Uh, our, our culture has created membership with the concept of privileges come along with membership. Or as one person after first service reminded me, sometimes membership means you're looked to as to be the donor or the basis upon. So, you know, that's not the concept here. The concept of, of, of partnership is that you believe what we're doing and you want to partner with us to see this mission carried out. Actually, the, the, the terminology I like best is that you want to make this your church home, that we're a family, and you want to be a part of this family. After Elsie and I had been dating for a while, I would occasionally visit her family farm her family was always gracious and inclusive, but I was just a guest at such occasions and always felt a little bit on the outside. Not because anybody intentionally made me feel that way. It's just the way it was. They were family and I was not. How do you, how do you get around that? But the day came when we got married, and I've been a part of that family for nearly 42 years now. And after our wedding, my feelings changed. I was no longer a guest. They were stuck with me. It's funny how being a part of the family changes your perspective. As an in-law, I'm not family by blood. I'm family by choice. I think that applies to what we're trying to do this morning. Now, yes, of course, if, if you're a part of the body of Christ global, yes, you're, you're there because of the blood of Christ that brought us redemption. But I'm a part of this congregation by choice. You're a part of this congregation by choice. You, there's other congregations in the area that you could choose to be a part of. I'm just glad you've chosen to be a part of this. And if you've been weighing that decision on your mind, then, then I hope today you'll say, I've decided. This is going to be the place I'm going to call home. You see, this is the family to whom we turn when we seek encouragement, spiritual help, prayer support, and comfort to face our challenges. And that's what family does for one another. Families often quibble about the little things. But when there's an outside force coming in on the family, boy, the family circles the wagons and you stick close because that's what family does. So let me remind you that being actively involved in the church is your best way to grow spiritually and to be surrounded by others who've got your back during the crisis moments and the tough moments of life. I like this Japanese proverb. It reads like this, a single arrow is easily broken but not 10 in a bundle. Part of being a part of the church family is that you're bundled together with others here. Our life groups, our ministry groups, our mission groups, our support groups, our service groups all provide opportunities for us to grow together relationally. And when I hear people talk about a group that they're in, whether it's a ministry project or whether it is a support group or whether it's a life group and those people huddled around them in a tough time of their life and it hadn't been for the life group, they wouldn't have survived. I just thrill because that's exactly what the church is supposed to be. And we talk about one life and we talk about life groups and the word life appears in several of our names because because life change happens best in relationships. So why be intentional? Well, because we have a mission to make disciples. And as disciple makers, we enter into a loving relationship with the hope and prayer that we'll be able to reflect Jesus so that others will see him in us. 
Here's something else. Being intentionally relational is absent of the expectation of reciprocity. And you say, huh? Think of it like this. The church is not about, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch my back. It's not about, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. You see, when we serve in the body of Christ, it's with the expectation that we get nothing back from somebody. You know, that, that, because that's the way relationships work. Marriages and parenting and grandparenting and friendships and working relationships don't work if you say, I'll do this for you, but then you've got to turn around and do this for me. That's not a relationship. That's a business contract. And relationships don't offer like, operate like that. And so God calls us to build relationships that say, I'll scratch your back and I don't have any expectations in return. And then, being intentionally relational requires sacrifice. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave everything. And relationships are not without a cost. Marriage, parenting, grandparenting, friendships, working relationships are all costly. But they are well worth the investment. Whether it's time or treasure, intentional relationships will cost you something at some point. But things that cost you nothing are usually worth about that much. So invest heavily. You'll be blessed. Well, there you have it, the relational pattern that Jesus said. It requires of us to be present, intentional, sacrificial, and no backscratching. And if you can build relationships like that, you'll make an impact in this world for Jesus Christ. You see, I'm convinced he is the only one that can bring us harmoniously together. Back in 1825, social reformer Robert Owen purchased a southern Indiana town and renamed it New Harmony. Maybe you have visited there and seen some of the old sites. He was intending to implement his vision to create a new moral world of happiness, enlightenment, and prosperity through education, science, technology, and communal living. But Owen's utopian community lasted only a handful of years and really, really never did take hold. You see, Harmony... Harmony is not to be found in a mandated social equality. Human beings naturally rebel at equality that isn't equal. It is not to be found in merely a greater knowledge or scientific discovery. It will not survive communal living. Harmony is fragile. But it is best discovered in emulating the life of Jesus Christ. And it's not about treating other people equally. It's about treating others as more deserving than us. It's found in leading by serving, not in seeking to be served. It is found in being willing to be last instead of willing to be first. It is found when everybody commits to following the same principles, God's principles, these lasting principles, and not our own. And when we can do that, then we will find harmony in Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of family I want to call home. That's the kind of family the ancient church modeled. You see, when you're here and you're part of the family, well, it, it just means something. Um, I'm granted a certain standing when I return to my hometown of Huntingburg because I'm a native of that area. Even though I've been gone for the greater part of my life, I still sort of belong because I share a common heritage with the folks who live in that area. 
My great-great-grandparents immigrated from Germany and settled there. My great-grandmother was born there and died there. My grandfather was born there and died there. My dad was born there, and I suspect my dad will die there someday. I am a fifth-generation native of Huntingburg. So consequently, I'm viewed differently than the person who moves in from out of state without any connection and who can't pronounce all the German names. You know an outsider pretty quick in Du Bois County, let me tell you. The same can be said for the church. When you belong to the family, you are granted a certain standing because you are a child of the Heavenly Father. You're viewed as a native, not as an outsider. There's a common spiritual heritage that we share. And if you're thinking, well, I belong to the church global. Yes, I understand that. That's awesome. But you also need to belong to the church local. Because this is where our service, our love, our lives are lived out. Rick Warren wrote this, he said, except for a few important exceptions, referring to all believers throughout history, almost every time the word church is used in the Bible, it refers to a local, visible congregation. We aren't a perfect church. I can tell you that right now. And if you think you're perfect, God bless you, you've got other problems that you need to work on. <laughs> and if you do find a perfect church, don't go. Because you'll mess it up. <laughs> you see, the church isn't designed to be perfect. It is filled with flawed, broken people. Every one of us here is flawed and broken and sinful. And that's why we need each other so much. The church needs you. You need the church. We need each other so that we can all together be a reflection of Jesus Christ and build intentional, loving relationships. So if you're here this morning and you're already an immersive believer, you're, you're a part of the global family and you want to make this your church home, we, we want you to come. If you were at the breakfast yesterday and uh, you made that choice, uh, come on down so other people can get to see you. But most importantly, if you're here this morning and you've never embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, you've never started this relationship that he wants to have with you, then today, will you just say, yeah, I, I, want, I want him as my Savior. The baptism area is ready to go. You don't have to do it today. You can do it some other time in the next few hours, but I would pray that you do it right now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Too much hangs in the balance. God took the first step. Now it's your turn to take your first step. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.